Soul Surmise with Steve Stockman, looking at issues of faith and culture. white dude and I'm thinking actually you know as we've gone through the evening I'm thinking of that little girl um, who couldn't didn't think she was pretty and probably didn't think she was pretty because white people were pretty and it's a white guy that comes and I don't know what happened you know, but he had he's not here so I can say what I like um, you can make it up I can make it on, up I won't correct um, you Tell me about that. I mean, that, that's... Uh, did you ever imagine you would marry a white man and come and live in Dramara? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, yeah, that was... Um, that was unexpected. <laughs> um, no, I... You know... The way I grew up, um, my mom was always very intentional about making sure that... I was in situations where I wasn't just going to be surrounded by people who looked like me. She, uh, it was very important to her that I learned how to navigate the wider world. And so I, I was in quite a diverse setting constantly, whether if it was at school or church or any of the groups that I was a part of. It was a very diverse upbringing. And so I wasn't, you know, I think also, you say a white guy, and I still go, did I marry a white dude? <laughs> because my aunt, she had this thing, now since uh, she has, she's grown a lot, I mean, as you can imagine, when you grow up in the Deep South, and you uh, grow the way they did, and they encounter such direct racism, and I mean hatred, uh, my grandfather who wasn't really involved in the civil rights movement, spent his days working in a factory for 12 to 14 hours and his nights on his porch with his shotgun because the KKK were coming to burn crosses, they were coming to throw stuff through the window. So this, we're not talking about someone calling you a name. You know, we're talking about growing up feeling like your life was threatened. And it took my, my aunt a long time to sort of um, realized that, you know, not all white people were throwing things through a window. Anyway, and I remember she used to tell us when we were young, you're not allowed to marry a white person, right? So then I was terrified 
bringing this boy home for Christmas, his first Southern Christmas. And um, how, how scared was he? He, do you know if you know my husband, he is nearly. I see now where he gets it from. He's almost too stubborn to be afraid. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We do. You know what I mean. Um, and he, uh, we, we arrive and we have a great time and he charms everybody and my cousins are sitting there and they, as cousins do, want to cause a bit of mischief and they said, oh mom, I thought you told us we weren't allowed to marry a white guy. What do you think of Dana's boyfriend? And she very quickly was like, he is not white. <laughs> this is what she said, he is not white, he's Irish. the sentiment because I think what they saw was that how difficult, particularly in the South, um, I always knew it growing up also when I had friends and I always knew, I mean I grew up and I knew that I had really close guy friends that, whose parents loved me, but if we ever dated it would not be okay. Mm. And I think you don't want that for your child. When you, when you see your children, you think the best, they like anybody would be lucky to have them. And to think that they would potentially be in a family with even one person who thinks that they're not good enough, you, it was her way of saying, I don't want you in that. But she, she is in love with my husband, actually. I have to... Yeah, fend him off, fend her off. I do. Um, so, but you, you, you decided to come here, and um, uh, it is very different than either the Deep South or LA for sure. So how was that coming here? And can I ask you, uh, not only in your early days, but since you've come here, racism in Northern Ireland, how have you found that? Well, well when I first moved here, honestly, I think because of the way I was raised, I am, we were raised to be comfortable wherever we were. We were raised to go into situations and ask questions. And so we were raised to go on it, to go away from home and have adventures. Um, it's funny because my, my, my aunt, even though she works very heavily in the African-American community, also works within the indigenous American community. And I mean, it's just, this is just how we were brought up. When I came here, I did have enough confidence in myself and in my own likability. I know that sounds really horrible to say. This is when my Americanness comes out when I start complimenting myself in front of people. But that's, <laughs> that's, that was like my one talent in life was being likable, you know? And, and it, it, it really worked. And when I came here, what I actually found was that this place felt familiar. I think I'm still trying to process exactly why that is. But I think um, we are very similar. Um, the black American culture, and I think this island, the, the culture, and there is a general culture that emanates from this island. It has to do around hospitality. It has to do around being grounded. There is, you are not gonna get far if you think too highly of yourself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, there is something that just, it, it is common across this entire island. And it is very common within the black American story. Even the dark humor, uh, c people who have been through really hard things. Um, I got here and I thought you all were hilarious. <laughs> Even when you were joking about things that other people say we shouldn't joke about. 
It's that laugh to keep from crying kind of thing. And there's something that felt really familiar. I, I understood how to move throughout, because in a black culture, your elders are very important, and you respect your elders, you honor them, you feed them first at the table, you, and when they speak, you know, when my grandmother was still alive, I could go tell on my mother to her, and my mother would get properly in trouble. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I see that, particularly in rural Ireland, that matriarch status, that granny still has the last word even when her children are grown. Those things felt really familiar to me. And so it, I, I genuinely didn't feel that sense of um, culture shock. As far as racism, hmm. I don't think that I would, I've never lived in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and I do know people of color who do live in Belfast who have different stories than me, so you have to understand that. Don't hear my story and think it's everybody's story. Um, the biggest city I lived in here in Northern Ireland was Lisburn. When I came here, I had a ready-made family waiting for me and a ready-made group of friends. They were my husband's people, so there was that. I didn't have to you know, try to nudge my way into something that was already established. And then also what I found is living rurally and um, people are way more concerned with whether you're kind um, than, <laughs> you know, the color of your skin. And I, I, find, I, I find myself being a bit of a novelty, but when you come from the South, when you're just so hyper aware of your color all the time, you're hyper aware. Being here, people are aware of your difference only in that it was interesting to them. It was something different, for goodness sake. Like, I live in Jamar, like... Not even, I mean, you just we, live in the back end, I know where have you... And we I don't even live in Jamar. Jamar is the big town, that's we go to Jamar for our big shop. It's quite a treasure hunt to get to your house. <laughs> so I, I find that people, I find that where we live, people pride themselves on being open to me and, and being curious about me. And I think, I think in all of my 14 years, it was one time that someone said something rude about the color of my skin. And um, that 14 years, I mean, when you, I don't know, that's... Yeah. That's actually quite good for me. <laughs> well, I mean, to say your your husband is a pastor uh, in Vineyard Church, um, and that's part of, of what you do. Are there any other? I was trying to think. Are there any other pastors' wives that made a career in singing? I don't know. I mean, we know, you know, there's the Reverend Al, and he's doing that bit. And, but I wondered, is there anybody like yourself who's been doing that career alongside a pastor? Because it's they're quite different jobs. They're very different jobs. Yeah, and, and so... I have to behave myself <laughs> so as not to get him fired. <laughs> eh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, how, I mean, how is it? I mean, to do those different jobs, one's very much within a community and one's very much touring the world. I mean, mm -hmm. how easy is that to, to work through? I think for me and Andrew, we just know that we respect the different callings that we each feel we have on our lives. And 
um, no, we don't know anybody else doing life the way we've done it. Um, so it's hard to get advice or to see yourself or your story in other people. But this is the life we live. This is the life we've chosen. He respects my job sometimes more than I do. And I absolutely respect what he gives his life to. And I think at the end of the day, what's really funny is we both are quite passionate about the same one thing. And it's about when we die, that we live, leave this place better than we found it. Mm. And where you are, you're kind of doing that. And, I mean, I went out and spent a morning with you, which was wonderful. And you were talking about some of the relationships. I mean, rural Northern Ireland, and here's the, the charismatic vineyard, white and black marriage up the road, and <laughs> uh, Catholic community, school, everything else. You're, You've integrated wonderfully into that. Tell us a bit about that. Well, we moved out to where we are about five years ago um, to build a house and all this stuff. And my husband was brought up um, within the Protestant community in Northern Ireland. And then he married this black American girl from a civil rights background and then we ended up moving to a predominantly Catholic area and our kids were really young and immediately we had this conversation where should we where should they go to school and it was it wasn't really something we talked too much about except for we knew that different people would have different um, reactions to it but for us it just made sense we care about living in our community. Like, what's the point of having a house and living somewhere if you don't have people around you, if you're not part of the community? And right down the road at the bottom of our mountain is a little community school, and it happened to be a Catholic school. And we just thought, what, what, what are we gonna do? Drive past that school to put our kids in another school, but for what reason? And then I think the other thing we thought about was how, how can we say that we want to see something different in Northern Ireland, that we want to see a Northern Ireland that celebrates one another, that acknowledges one another's stories, if we're not willing to do that at the very basic level of our lives, if we are willing to live a segregated life. And so our kids went to the... Um, local Catholic school for about four years. And, um, and that was a massive learning experience for everybody. But I will say that that community, I think no one ever talked about it, no one ever said it, but we knew that there was like a level of trust between all of us because that was a big thing to do. And our community knew it was a big thing to do and they rallied around our kids, they made sure that we felt welcomed. They made sure that we were involved in everything, that we were included in everything. And that was a really, it was like moving to Northern Ireland again for the first time. Um, yeah. So your dreams then, is it more of that? Is, I mean, you've sung about your, you know, your grandmother letter for her daughter. Mm -hmm. And Noor's back there somewhere probably watching 
something on a tablet or something because she'd be bored with us. Mm. Uh, what's your dreams for them and what's your dreams for that little community you're in and the wider Northern Ireland? Yeah. I dream of a time in the future where the most heartbreaking parts of the story of this place are not the loudest stories we tell because we have things that we accomplished together. It doesn't mean that those stories disappear. I mean, I grew up in a family where you cannot allow the stories to disappear no matter how painful they are because we learn from them we are who we are because of them, but I mean they're not our loudest stories. I think for me as a black American, my loudest story isn't slavery or um, segregation or Jim Crow laws. My loudest story is a story of resilience, of strength, of overwhelming love the things I learned by watching the people I love sacrifice for a better future. I want my kids to grow up. I want them to want to live here in Northern Ireland because I think it's an amazing place. But I want them to have been all around the world and know this is a good place. I dream that we as a people here rediscover our value and our worth enough that we begin to, de to demand better from ourselves, from one another, from our leaders. I dream that the excitement of the hope of what the future could be outweighs whatever benefit we have from holding on to the past to the point where it anchors us and keeps us in places that we don't really want to be and don't serve us well anymore. I do dream that my kids will raise children in a Northern Ireland that is known for its hopefulness and for its courage. And I dream that your children's children's children tell stories of the sacrifices you made so that they did not have to live the same story um, and carry the same weights. That is a deep dream that I have for this place. And this is my home now. I cast my lots in with you all. And I want to do everything I can to help that future become a reality. And sometimes I think the only thing I can do is just raise my three kids to hope and to want better and to treat people well, no matter what their story, no matter what their background, no matter the color of their skin, to do essentially what I was taught to do in South Carolina. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Dana.
Lost my way in a desert land Searching for somewhere I could stand High and dry I crossed the sea Wasn't looking for a home But home found me The wide open arms of your hills pulled me in I fell for your charms and your wild northern winds And then you lay me down and whispered soft and sweet I'll be your home if you let me Lost my way in a desert land Searching for somewhere I could stand High and dry, I crossed the sea I wasn't looking for home But home found me The wide open arms of your hills pulled me in for your charms and your wild northern winds and then you lay me down and whispered soft and sweet I'll be your home if you let me but nothing to give I had nothing to bring still you Suffering, and when I close my eyes, I still hear you breathe, and with every sigh, you give life to me. The wide open arms of your hills pull me in. I fell for your charms and your wild northern winds, and then you lay me down and whisper. Soft and sweet I'll be your home If you let me
Boylan. Cian Boylan, Dana Masters. You've been listening to the Soul Surmise podcast with Steve Stockland. The series is produced in Hollywood by Peter Greer 